knowing that the Holy Spirit is here with us, that he is actively involved in this service. We, we know that from his word. We know of the powerful reality that it is when the people of God gather together to worship him uh, as a corporate entity, that we are collectively the temple of the Holy Spirit, individually the temple of the Holy Spirit, a special time. It is when we come together in the name of Jesus and to know today, in this moment, that the Holy Spirit is with us. It brings me great comfort as a preacher, uh, and I pray that it brings all of us great comfort as we are gathered here this morning to participate in worshiping God. That's another thing, too. You know, we never uh, just come and spectate. Perhaps there is a little bit of a spectator culture in churches today of just sort of coming, nestling in, getting comfortable, sitting back, and then taking in some sort of spectacle. I pray that's not your heart this morning, that you have not come to spectate, but that you have come to participate as one of those guided by the Holy Spirit who is here to worship our God. Our text for today is Exodus chapter 5. So if you would go there with me, Exodus chapter 5 specifically verses 1 to 14. So not the whole chapter, uh, but verses 1 to 14. And as you're turning or scrolling, just want us to consider as we open up God's Word this morning that we know that this has the power to change us. The Word of God has the power to change us and it has the power to grow us. So our only hope of transformation, our only hope of sanctification is God. And we know that God does this by means of his word. It is like a, like a shovel in his hands. It is like the, the scalpel of a surgeon. It is God's means. It's his instrument by which he changes people and grows people, by which he makes people in the image of his son Jesus. So just think about the joyful privilege that it is to even go to a passage in the Bible and to have it in God's providence be the case that our eyes this day are falling on the written word of the living God. We know what God's word does from Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16 says all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable For teaching, listen to this list, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The sufficiency of Scripture, it's it's inspired by God, it is authoritative, and it is powerful in and of itself to equip us, not for half of the good works we must do, or three-fourths, or 99.9%, but to equip us For every good work. Well, guess what? Exodus chapter 5, verses 1 to 14, falls under that category. Romans chapter 15, verse 4 says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. This is the Apostle Paul writing in the first century about the Old Testament scriptures. Written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Are you feeling hopeless this morning? Are you discouraged this morning? 
We are opening up God's word, the very words Paul is referring to, and we are being told that it, it is these words that are to encourage us and give us hope in Christ. Give us hope in our God. So not just stories, not just ancient tales from long ago. These are, as I've said before, great stories, uh, so the best stories in the world. Uh, we were talking about, I mentioned how Leo Tolstoy commented that the story of Joseph in Egypt is the greatest story in human literature. The greatest stories the world has ever had are in the Bible. But more than that, this is God's revelation to his people. This is God's means of changing us and building us up radically into the image of Jesus. Last week, we looked at Moses' return to Egypt. We get various scenes as Moses transitions from Midian to Egypt, all of these sort of rapid fire passages that we get lined up or stacked up together, bringing us from Moses the sheep herder in the shepherd in Midian to Moses standing before Pharaoh, as we're going to see today, standing before Pharaoh as the leader of the Israelite people, as the deliverer who has come in the name of Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. So we got this return to Egypt and all of these little bits of transition. And what we saw was that he arrives in Egypt with his brother Aaron as two things. He arrives as a prepared Israelite and as a confirmed leader. It is as though, we talked about this in, in previous chapters, it is as though God has Hebraized Moses. And that's what that whole circumcision scene is about with his son. God comes to kill, and we talked about the debate over whether God comes to kill Moses or comes to kill his son. Uh, but either way, God comes, I think, to kill Moses because his son is uncircumcised. Moses has failed to be in practice, in reality, a covenantal member of the Israelite people. He has failed to circumcise his son, and that story with all that is around it is telling us that as God transitions Moses from Midian back to Egypt to be the Hebrew deliverer, he is re-Hebraizing him, making him a legitimate Israelite as he comes to his people. But we also saw how God was confirming his leadership God was confirming him among the people. So Aaron comes out to meet him and God confirms his promises to Moses. All the things God said would happen, that he would do, happen. And God brings Moses into Egypt. And just as God said, the people accept him. And they bow, they worship the Lord, they, they believe. God performs the signs that he promised he would perform. Moses arrives in Egypt as a prepared Israelite and as a confirmed Leader, And just for us, on a practical level, it reminds us that God equips us to do what he's called us to do. He never just calls us to do something, puts us on a boat, and sets us out to sea. That's not how the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob works. That's not how the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ works in the lives of his people. He calls us and he equips us to do what he's called us to do. Here's the difficulty, though. Often he doesn't equip us in the way we want to be equipped. He doesn't equip us precisely the way we, in our own fallible, limited wisdom, think that he ought. 
And so we grumble or we have insecurity or we compare ourselves to others, all these different things. But we know from stories like this in God's word that God does equip those whom he calls. He equips us perfectly according to his purposes. And often that will mean sending us to do things in which we feel very uncomfortable and in which we feel unequipped. And yet we trust that God does equip. Last week, as we came to the end of chapter four, we got a pretty happy ending. If chapter four were the end, at least we weren't moving into chapter five, we would have a a, a great happy ending. The elders of the people except Moses. Listen to chapter four, verse 31. And the people believed, it's a big deal. It's been over 400 years. They believed And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, in other words, they believed that God visited Moses, the representative of the people, when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. What a happy ending. A happy ending to chapter four. Well, this happy ending takes a bit of a turn as we enter chapter five today. And this transition alone from the end of chapter 4 to the beginning of chapter 5 tells us that God is sovereign over the good and the bad. So people of God, listen to this. God is sovereign over the good in your life and what you would call the bad in your life. God is sovereign over the happy and he is sovereign over the sad. The God who was very much on his throne in chapter 4, verse 31, when the people hear and receive and believe and worship, is the same God in what we're going to read today. God did not take a break from ruling. He did not leave his throne, his sovereignty and providence, his goodness, his oversight did not fail. He was the same sovereign God over the happy and the sad. And that brings us great comfort because life is filled with both. Life is filled, if we're honest, with both of those things. The difficulty is for us to persevere and maintain our confidence in the Lord in those moments of darkness as we see it. Those moments of sadness, those moments of stress and pressure and even misery. The Lord still reigns. The title for the sermon this morning is Meeting with Pharaoh. So if you would go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word, we're going to read chapter 5, verses 1 to 14. Meeting with Pharaoh. This is the holy word of the living God. After Moses and Aaron went, And said to Pharaoh, afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please 
let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens? The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves, wherever you can find it. But your work will not be reduced in the least." So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task, each day as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? This is God's word. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray, ask for God's blessing over this time of instruction from the Holy Scriptures. Our Heavenly Father, we, we love you, Lord. We love you because you first loved us in Jesus before the foundation of the world. You chose us in him. For your glory, for the glory of your matchless grace. God, we praise you that we have hearts with desires to bring ourselves before you and worship. Father, none of that would be possible without your grace. None of that would be a reality without your spirit. Father, we thank you. We thank you for our salvation. We thank you that you have delivered us from the bondage of sin and death and hell. That you have defeated our enemy, the devil. And that you will ultimately defeat him in the lake of fire. Father, we thank you that our future is secure. As we saw at the end of Romans 8, our future is perfectly, entirely secure in your mighty hand. Father, we thank you that it is because of this hope, as Paul tells the Colossians, the hope laid up for them in heaven, laid up for us in heaven, it is because of this hope that we have faith and love richly growing in us, Father. We praise you that you are working in us, that you have not abandoned us, you have not left us to ourselves, to our mortal bodies Lord, you are continuing to work with these very fallible vessels of clay. 
Lord, we praise you that you will see this through to the end, that you will perfect this work which you have begun in us. We praise you, God, that in our sinfulness and in our failing, in our disobedience and rebellion against your word, in our uh, entertaining idols, failing to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, worshiping ourselves in selfishness and pride and envy and covetousness. God, in all of this, you are merciful to us, your people, through the blood of Christ. We praise you, God, that you have shown us this grace, and we ask that your grace would be with us this morning as we open your word, as we study it. God, that you would work in each of us, bringing about your good purposes as you reshape us and remake us, as you fix the marred image within us, as you conform us to the perfect image of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would do that work this morning, that you would do as you promise. In 2 Timothy, that you would do as you promise throughout your word, Lord, that you would equip us for every good work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we are. Moses, in his first encounter with the most powerful man in the world at that time. And as we just read, this meeting does not end well. At least we could say that from a human perspective. This does not appear to be a success. We're going to look at two things this morning as we, as we look at this encounter with Pharaoh, this meeting with Pharaoh. Two things. First, the refusal, verses 1 to 5, the actual encounter itself. And then I think we need to include with this encounter the results that follow out of it. And so that's why I've taken verses 6 to 14 along with verses 1 to 5. We have the refusal itself in verses 1 to 5, and then in verses 6 to 14, we have the result, the result of this encounter between Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh. So let's look first at the refusal, verses 1 to 5. We're going to read those verses again. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, by the way, this is the most important part of the sermon. The most important part of the sermon is the reading of God's word. So don't just check out at this part. This is is why we do it repeatedly. It's because this is God speaking to us from his word. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is Yahweh? that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know Yahweh, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. Two statements and two responses. That's what we get in these verses. Two statements and two responses. Twice, Moses and Aaron deliver... A message to Pharaoh. And in each case, 
Pharaoh responds. How? One word, refusal. Pharaoh refuses to listen to the message. He refuses to accept the message that has been given. He rejects this message. He refuses this request. So let's look at each of these exchanges. The first exchange, here's the message. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. God has called his people to worship him. That's what God's people do. We see this very early in the Bible. In fact, at the very earliest time with Cain and Abel, we see that God's people, those who trust in him by faith, worship him. They come to him and they make sacrifices to him. And we know from Paul in Romans chapter 12 that our sacrifices are our hearts and minds always going up to the Lord in everything. Not being conformed to this world, but offering ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. God's people are to worship him, period. And this is to be without ceasing, always. This is what it means to be the people of God. You know, it's, uh, I remember telling a, a pastor friend in Scotland about, uh, uh, you know, our, our worship area. And anytime you talk about these things, you know, a sanctuary or a worship area, use this sort of language, it, it kind of betrays this idea. We are always worshiping. Of course, we'll call this a worship area because it's where we come together. It happens to be the place we come together to worship God corporately. But all of life we must recognize is worship. Every moment, worship to our God. God has called his people to worship him, to serve him, to belong to him. And here, God speaks authoritatively through his prophet Moses and Moses' brother Aaron. Thus says the Lord. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel. This language makes clear that it is not merely Moses and Aaron who are making a demand of Pharaoh. This is not a message from Moses or Aaron. If Moses would have had his way about it, he would still be tending sheep in Midian. We remember all of the objections that Moses brings to God. The two softer objections at first, and then those three very straightforward objections, uh, culminating in Moses essentially saying, I don't want to do this. Just send somebody else. This is not something Moses has cooked up or Aaron has cooked up with Moses. They've been sitting in the, in the wilderness scheming over what message they're going to bring to Pharaoh. It's not that way at all. They are putting God's authority in front of the ruler. Thus says the Lord. And really, this is always the goal of preaching. The preacher puts before the people of God his word and says, not thus says the preacher, go and follow my advice. It is thus says the Lord. And as best as he can, to explain God's word to his people that they may hear God's word and obey. Moses and Aaron are bringing God's authority because they are bringing God's word. This is God's message. And it challenges 
Pharaoh's supremacy. It challenges his control over and dominance of Israel. At this point, Pharaoh very much has the Israelites under his thumb. Total, absolute, sovereign power over this beat-down slave people. Absolute dominance over Israel. Well, when Moses and Aaron come to Pharaoh and they say, thus says the Lord, they are challenging, these words are challenging Pharaoh's supremacy. Pharaoh is not the God of Israel. Yahweh is. And even more, Yahweh, as the God over all, has the right to command Pharaoh. Do you notice that? Here's Pharaoh who has not heard a command ever. Never, ever, ever has anyone brought a command up into Pharaoh's face. First time. And here's Moses and Aaron bringing a command from their God, the God of this slave people, the God of the Hebrews, Yahweh. He has power over you, Pharaoh, and this is what he's telling you to do. That's the message Moses and Aaron bring. So what's the ruler's response? Well, verse 2 tells it to us. Who is Yahweh? That I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know Yahweh. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Arrogance, contempt, anger, rejection of the word of God, rebellion against the king of kings, the king of heaven, rebellion against his maker. That's Pharaoh's response. And probably with a tone of absolute disgust and utter disdain. You can only imagine how this Pharaoh would have responded. The facial expressions that he would have made. The harsh tone that he would have delivered his message with. Probably one of disgust and disdain as he says, Who is Yahweh? that I should obey him. Underlying this, I think we also need to see, is the emphasis on I. So yes, he says, who is Yahweh? So the emphasis on Yahweh, who is Yahweh? Just dragging God's name through the dirt. Who is this God? But also we see the exaltation of self Who is Yahweh that I, who is Yahweh that I should obey him? The great king and godlike ruler of Egypt. Why should I obey anyone? What we have here is a small view of God and a big view of self. That's what's at the core of Pharaoh. A small view of God and a big view of self. That's Pharaoh's problem, and maybe that's your problem as you've come here this morning. You're trying to diagnose all sorts of things in your life. Maybe you're an unbeliever, or you're a believer. You're diagnosing what's going on, where you're at, why your heart is in the shape it's in. Maybe it is this fundamental problem. God has become small, and you have become huge. That was Pharaoh's problem. 
This is always the case when we rebel against God's word. Last week we talked about obedience to God's word. It is always the case, listen to this, in every moment when we sin against God, when we reject God's word, neglect his word, dismiss his word, it is always the case that underlying that rejection of God's word, thus says the Lord, is a small view of God and a big view of self. It's always the problem. As we think about this big view of self, we get an illustration of that from Ramesses II. We get a a, a writing from the 13th century, which is later, about two centuries later, with Ramesses II. He writes to his father, from whom he came forth, Tatanen, father of the gods, I am your son, whom you have placed Upon your throne. So, who is Pharaoh in his own mind? Son of God. He is, in his mind, divine. This arrogant dismissal of Israel's God, this exaltation of self, is followed by a firm and resolute answer of no way. No way am I going to let Israel go. I do not know Yahweh, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Request denied. Message rejected. Yes, it is true. Pharaoh does not currently know Yahweh. But in time, he will come to know Yahweh. He will come to know at least his glory, his mighty power, over all of Egypt and all of Egypt's so-called gods. He will come to know the power of this God. He will come to see that Yahweh is worth knowing. Later, chapter 14, verse 4, we read, I will get glory, this is the Lord speaking, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And listen to this, and the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. He doesn't know now, but he will soon enough. And in time, he will let Israel go. Just as the Lord said in chapter 3, verses 19 to 20, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. So the Lord assures Moses, he's not going to let you go, but he will. I am going to come against Pharaoh. I'm going to strike him with a mighty hand, and he will let you, let your people, let the Israelite people go. So that's the first exchange there. I want to take ample time on this. The second exchange comes to us beginning in verse 3. Here's the message, verse 3. The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. This is essentially the message that God gave Moses at the burning bush. And we discussed that back in chapter 3, verse 18. But tacked on to the end of this message, you'll notice, is the concern that God may fall upon Israel with pestilence or with the sword if they don't leave. 
Now, this, this is a little strange to us when we read it. What's Moses doing? That's not what God told him to say. He, he says the, what God had told him to say essentially in chapter 3, verse 18. He began the conversation earlier with, thus says the Lord, to make clear that it was God's authority. But what is this bit about pestilence and the sword falling on Israel if Pharaoh does not let the people go? Well, perhaps Moses has in mind God's actions at the lodging place. Remember when Zipporah sees that Moses is in danger, he's about to die, and what does she do? She circumcises Moses' son, and God relents. God does not strike Moses. Well, perhaps Moses has that event in mind when the Lord came to kill him because of his uncircumcised son. Moses takes the worship of Yahweh seriously. That's the big thing we need to see here. He does not think it is a small matter that the people are not collectively participating in the worship of God. God's people must worship him, period. When God's people do not worship him, it brings God's discipline. Moses is simply reflecting the seriousness of what is at stake. He recognizes that there is a covenant in place and that God must be praised by his people. They must serve him and him alone. And perhaps by this time we've talked about how Israelite religion has probably become quite perverted in Egypt. I mean, we don't know. I, I tend to think that a lot has been held on to. Joseph's bones are taken. They remember that sort of thing. Jochebed is the name of Moses' mother, the Lord, Yahweh is glorious, is what it means. So I tend to think that we very much have here a situation where the people have retained their worship of the Lord. But undoubtedly, it has become perverted. And we see this playing out at the, the golden calf incident. The worship of God is not pure. And probably in some places even unknown, they must serve their God. Now this is relevant for Pharaoh, this whole business about the pestilence and the sword is relevant for Pharaoh because if Israel suffers sword or plague, it is bound to spill over into the rest of Egypt. So he's saying to Pharaoh, look, God is going to strike us if we don't worship him and if we get struck, you're gonna be struck too. Of course, the irony here is that it will be Egypt itself that will suffer plague and defeat at the Red Sea. God's judgment will fall on Pharaoh and his people for not letting Israel go. Pestilence and sword, as it were, will fall on Egypt, not Israel. So what is Pharaoh's response in this second exchange? Does he change his mind? Does he say, well... I've thought about it a little bit. I've heard what you have to say, and you make a good point there at the end. Yes, I think I'm going to let you guys go. That's not what he says at all. Verses 4 to 5. Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. This is all one big distraction from work. That, that's Pharaoh's response. This is nothing more than a distraction. So he is dismissive at this point. 
you almost imagine him laughing at Moses and Aaron in a contemptuous, spiteful way and simply say, get back to work. What are you doing? The people are many and much work is being lost while you entertain these fancies. Get out of here and get back to work. Take up your burdens. Put those blocks back on your skinny little backs, you slave people. And stop peddling this distracting nonsense. That's Pharaoh's response. This is a door slamming in the face of Moses and Aaron. Just as God had told Moses would happen, But what we'll see in a moment is that Pharaoh doesn't just slam the door in their face. He brings further crushing burdens on the people. He doesn't just say no, now get away. He says no, and then he mashes in heavier on this people. What an act of defiance against the word of the living God. Before we move on, to verses 6 to 14, I want to highlight a couple of big picture implications for us. So just two here before we move on from these first five verses. So first, as Yahweh confronts Pharaoh, we see that he alone is over all nations and rulers. Notice this. He comes into the most powerful nation of the time, to the ruler of that people, and he asserts himself as king. He asserts himself as as God. He alone is over all nations and rulers. And listen to this. That was the case 3,500 years ago in Egypt. And it is the case today. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. As we talked about, God is I am. I am who I am. Yahweh, he is. He does not change. And he is over all. Isaiah 40, verses 22 to 23. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. As Doug read to us earlier. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain. And spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Who brings princes to nothing. And makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. That includes Pharaoh. He hardens hearts. And change his hearts. He is the God of history. Sovereign over all. And here's what we need to see. We can trust in this sovereign God. In the face of any political or social upheaval. No matter what it might be. No matter what political situation we find ourselves in. Internationally. Locally. Nationally. Whatever it may be. We can trust That this God is over the nations. He can harden hearts and he can change hearts. And so as the people of God today, just like the people of God in the Roman Empire in the first century, just like the people of God under bondage in Egypt, we rest. We rest in the Lord. A second implication that we need to see is that this phony claim of the Pharaohs to being the Son of God reminds us that there is one who actually is the Son of God. Nebuchadnezzar sees one in the fiery furnace, three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and one in there, 
translated differently, the son of God or one, one like a son of the gods, whatever the translation there one goes with. The point is that I think is an anticipation, whether it's translated as son of the gods in Nebuchadnezzar's own polytheistic mind, I think it is, a, it is an anticipation of this fourth person with the three Hebrews. This one who, who became embodied, who took on a human nature, human body and soul in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the God-man, the second person of the Trinity, enfleshed, incarnate deity. As we sing at Christmas, there is one who is the Son of God. It wasn't Pharaoh, and it is no one else besides Jesus Christ. He is God with us in human flesh. And he did not come to dominate us, but to die for us. He did not come to enslave us, but to forever free us for eternal joy. This is our king. So when we say we are slaves of Christ, when the New Testament writers say they are bond servants of Christ, we say it gladly. We are slaves of this Christ, this Jesus, this King. We will do whatever he says. We will go wherever he wants us to go because he died for us. He gave everything to save us and to make us his eternal possession for our eternal joy. There is one who is the Son of God. So that's the refusal, verses 1 to 5. We also see the result in verses 6 to 14, and we can move through this a little more quickly. It's laid out very straightforwardly. So look at verses 6 to 14. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it. And pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Here we get a very straightforward account of what resulted from this encounter with Pharaoh. From this very, as we would see it on a human level, very unsuccessful. We know, of course, in God's plan it was very successful. But in, from a human standpoint, this unsuccessful encounter with Pharaoh. What resulted from that? He didn't just say no. He cracked down on the people. In verses 6 to 9, we get the instructions from Pharaoh to the Egyptian taskmasters and Hebrew foremen. It is an authoritative command. The Hebrew slaves are no longer to be given straw to make their quota of bricks. This is, we would say, cruelty. 
At least they were being given straw before. They are no longer to be given any straw. Straw was used to make the mud bricks stronger and more pliable. It had a use and uh, there were stone uh, there were stones and then there were these mud bricks that were used to build and, and the straw made them more pliable, workable, and made it stronger. So they need the straw if they are to make the bricks. But now they will have to gather this straw on their own. But here's the kicker. The number of bricks that they are required to produce will remain the same. So No longer will they be given a pile of straw to work with. That pile is gone. Same number of bricks required. Their burdens have just become, their unbearable burdens have just become even more unbearable. What reason does Pharaoh give for this approach? Verses 8 to 9, for they are idle. They're lazy. These lazy, good-for-nothing slaves. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. They must not have enough to do. That's what Pharaoh reasons. They must not have enough work laid on them to do. They must have too much spare time on their hands. That's why they're chasing these fanciful notions, these lying words from Aaron and Moses. I'll just pile on more work. That's what I'll do. I'll pile on more work and they won't have any room in their lives for such nonsense. Not a single moment free to think about these, this silliness. Not a single moment to gather where they could get together and say, you know, we need to do this religious thing or whatever. No time. More work. Well, as you would expect, Pharaoh's directive must be followed. So in verses 10 to 14, we read how it was carried out. So the directive comes, verses 6 to 9, and then the the outworking of that in verses 10 to 14. No more piles of straw to work with. These burdened slaves are now sent throughout the land to find straw wherever they can. But even worse, since the straw would have already been harvested, they are forced to gather stubble. So it's not as though the pile was once here. And now they have to go to all of the storehouses and just kind of pull it out and bring it uh, to where they are. Just a few more uh, hundred yards to walk or, or to go and get this straw. Just a little more effort to go and get it themselves and bring it to where they are. That's not the case at all. Notice what it says. Now, They are gathering stubble. This is the low-lying leftovers that would have been difficult to dig up and cut from the ground. Not one quickly cut with a sickle where you would just cut a a big old batch of straw and you begin to gather that. That's not the case at all. They're digging in the dirt, trying to get what little bits of straw that was left there from the harvest as much as they can in order to make these bricks. This is a pitiful sight. It's a pitiful predicament for these slaves. Even worse, as verse 14 says, when the number of bricks falls short, as it inevitably would, of course, they were already being worked to the max. They they had no more efficiency, 
No more productivity that could be squeezed out of them. It's as though this lemon has been squeezed and squeezed and squeezed. Nothing left, not a single drop. So when these bricks, the number of bricks, fall short, the Hebrew foremen are beaten. Notice that this is also an effort to tear the people apart. The foremen have to stand over their fellow Hebrews. They are Hebrews. The taskmasters are Egyptian. The foremen are Hebrews. They stand over their fellow Hebrews to implement this cruel policy. They're the bosses in a sense. They're the first level of bosses. Pharaoh's turning the Hebrew people against themselves. And the foremen in turn are beaten when the people fail to meet expectations. I think we need to notice here that we see the work of Satan to divide the hearts of God's people. Satan is always at work like a a prowling, roaring lion to, to tear God's people apart. When you see tension and resentment and bitterness and anger and unforgiveness and judgment, quickness to anger, quickness to speak and slowness to listen, all of these things are from the evil one. They're from the devil. So if these exist anywhere among you now, put that fire out. It will only grow. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Quarreling among us, quarreling among us, bitterness and unforgiveness, lack of love is from the evil one. He loves to tear the people of God apart from one another. And here we see Satan in the person of Pharaoh, his servant, ripping the people apart. Something must be done, and it will be the mighty plagues of Yahweh. That's what will be done. Egypt will be ravaged, pounded, struck by the mighty hand of the Lord, culminating in the death of the firstborn of every household in Egypt, including the firstborn of the so-called Son of God, Pharaoh. Next week, we'll look at how the people... And Moses respond, and then later how God responds to Moses. So that's where we're headed in the coming weeks. But I want to close this morning with two observations as we finish up. Two observations. First, notice that this is very instructive for the people of God. Notice that God's path, God's plan is uncomfortable for his people. We see that here. Everything is working according to plan. That's what we need to see. Yes, Satan is at work through cruel Pharaoh. And yes, Pharaoh is sinning against God in all that he's doing. But none of this, the 430 years in Egypt. Remember as we read from the Psalms, it was God himself who turned the heart of the Pharaoh against his people. Everything is working according to to plan. But God's path and God's plan is not comfortable in this story for his people. And we see that in the first century. God's plan, not comfortable. For many of those 
beloved Christians at the end of chapter 16 in Romans who were undoubtedly murdered torturously, horrifically by the Emperor Nero less than a decade later. The persecution that we do read about in the New Testament. All according to plan. Stephen's stoning. All according to plan. We live in a world that has drank deeply from the prosperity gospel and all of us have been infected with it. To where it is difficult for us to hear this idea that God doesn't call us to comfort. He doesn't call us to live a comfortable life. The Christian life is uncomfortable. Filled with many hardships. The path of God's people is filled with much suffering. God doesn't promise that we will be comfortable, but he does promise to carry out his perfect purposes through Christ for our good and his glory. That's what we trust. We have a God of comfort. The truth is that it's in each of our hearts. If you're honest, we really want God to bless us in all the ways we like. We really want God to make life very smooth, very affluent, very comfortable, and free of hardships. And if, if, if you doubt this, just think about when God's people gather, how much we pray about sickness and lost jobs and those sorts of things, all of which we bring to the Lord gladly. But that's where our hearts are, people of God's where our minds are. We're consumed with earthly things. It's not comfort that we are called to in the way of Christ crucified. It is faithfulness to God in all of our hardships, in all of our trials, trusting that God's perfect purposes through Christ spill out into our eternal good, not temporary, not temporal, eternal good and his glory. That's the Christian life according to to scripture, and we see it illustrated for us here among the people of God under the burdens of Egypt. A second thing to notice as we close the entire passage is presented as a contest between the authority of Yahweh and that of Pharaoh. This entire set of verses, verses 1 to 14, are couched in that way. We notice. This from verse 1. Listen to verse 1. Thus says Yahweh. And then you you scroll down or, or flip over to verse 10. And what do you read? Thus says Pharaoh. Thus says Yahweh. Thus says Pharaoh. Well, who's going to win? Who's going to win? This authoritative voice from heaven or this authoritative voice? voice from the palaces of ancient Egypt. This Satan-like man or the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Who will win? The seed of the serpent or the seed of the woman? The answer is clear. 
And that's what we're meant to take away from a passage like this. This is the big idea. This is supposed to fall on us and give us much praise, much worship to God. It is supposed to make for us a big God. It is supposed to make in our minds an image of God that is massive, that is huge. Not an idol, but the true and living God seen from his word. The answer is clear. Yahweh is God. And there is no other. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for instructing us through this portion of your word. We thank you for these 14 verses from Exodus 5. And what they mean to us as the people of God. What they say to us about your glory. What they teach us about the path of the saints. One that has been illustrated all throughout history. Lord God, in this affluent, relatively persecutionless land, in this materialistic, secular, things loving culture, this, clo- this culture of pleasure and personal fulfillment, this culture of leisure worship. Lord God, we are all infected with the notion that life should be relatively comfortable. God, help us. Help us learn from our brothers and sisters in Christ for whom life is in no way comfortable. Lord, help us read from the past of the lives of those who've gone before us. And Lord, help us pick up our cross. Help us have enough hope to see beyond these momentary afflictions to the glories of heaven and the new heaven and the new earth. Give us faith and grow our faith in you. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.